privilege of preaching to you uh, about the post-resurrection uh, reinstatement and recommissioning of Simon the Peter the fisherman uh, by the risen Christ who after a series of uh, spiritual blunders that are well documented uh, throughout the Gospels uh, gets to a point where he even denies knowing Jesus at all in a pre-crucifixion uh, moment of weakness and of uh, panic until he was restored again by the risen Christ uh, who is very good at uh, doing that. And today I have the privilege of uh, preaching to you about one of Peter's finest uh, hours and uh, a signature turning point in the life and history of the infant church in which he also takes one of the most divisive and volatile issues to face the church, bubbles it up through the surface in a way that can still be seen in the life of the church today with some variations on the theme. And so today I have the privilege of talking to you about that as well and what it means to you and me and to the life that we share in this church family here at uh, St. Andrew. And so on this fifth week of Easter, I invite you you to fast forward with me from Jesus' conversation with Peter in John 21 to Acts chapter 11 when we find that Peter is once again in the hot seat. Uh, it is now about seven years after the resurrection and the Christian faith is growing but it's actually growing primarily as the messianic sect of Judaism. In other words, uh, people who grew up in the house of Israel and came to know Jesus as their promised Messiah. And so they were known as Jewish Christians. Uh, kind of reminds me of our uh, good friend Stan Friedman, member of our congregation, uh, who was the very first person ever to be baptized 14 years ago in what was then this brand new house of worship who came to me one day, uh, having grown up uh, in the house of Israel, and he said, you know, I finally connected the dots, and I see that Jesus is my promised Messiah. Well, back in the early days of the church, that's how most people came to Jesus. They were Jewish Christians. They, they were still going to the temple. They still referred to themselves as Jews. And they believed that you could get to Jesus, but that you had to get to him through Judaism, so that at this point in the story, Christianity still isn't really its own thing, so to speak. That is, until Acts chapter 10, when Simon Peter, of all people, in spite of his series of spiritual blunders, blows the paradigm wide open. And he does it at an Israeli seaport town known as Caesarea, which was uh, located about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was named after none other than the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, because it was the headquarters of the occupying forces of that Roman empire and of its appointed local governor, whose name was Pontius Pilate. And so Caesarea was a town that was filled uh, with political and religious opponents, enemies of the people of Israel. Uh, these are the people that carried out the execution of Jesus seven years earlier. These are the people who were neither Jewish nor Christian, and they belong to a racial and a uh, cultural and religious category of people known as Gentiles. And if you were a very pious member of the house of Israel, you did not associate with Gentiles. You did not go into the home of a Gentile. You did not transact business with a Gentile. You did not drink from the same cup as a Gentile. If you were a midwife, you did not deliver a Gentile baby, and it went on and on from there. Nevertheless, 
It is none other than Peter the fisherman who goes to none other than Caesarea from the place where he was staying, which was the city of Joppa, about 30 miles south of Caesarea, still on the coast of the Mediterranean, in what is today essentially a suburb of Tel Aviv. Peter goes to Caesar town, and there he enters into the home of a Gentile man. He does the unthinkable, the unheard of, the unimaginable when he puts his foot across the threshold of this Gentile individual who, to make matters much worse, happens to be an officer in the army of the Roman Empire. This guy's name is Cornelius. And while Luke says that, uh, you know, he's a pretty good guy, nevertheless, he has these associations, and yet uh, we are told that he is looking for God. And Cornelius has a a dream or a, a vision, and in his vision, he is told to send for a man in, guess where, Joppa, whose name is Simon, but is called Peter, which he then does. And that puts Peter in the position of making a decision of whether or not to go to Caesarea, which he does eventually go, and uh, he sets foot into the home of this Gentile Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius, and there he meets a crowd of people, and to them he proclaims the good news of Jesus and of his resurrection, after which Cornelius and his family are baptized. It is a stunning moment and turn of events in the history of our faith. Equally stunning is the fact that Peter makes this decision to break all kinds of laws and abandon all sorts of traditions that were part and parcel to his faith. As a person who knew Jesus personally, as a person who considered himself to be a Jewish Christian, And now in relationship to uh, this guy who did not come to Jesus through Judaism, was technically an enemy of the people of Israel, and yet he's looking for God. And Peter's decision to break those religious laws, to violate those traditions, not only resulted in the baptism of Cornelius and his family, which of course changed their lives forever, it also broke down a barrier. It destroyed a wall. It kicked open the door to salvation through Jesus Christ for the rest of the entire world. It is a stunning, singular turn of events in the history of the infant church. Now, Luke doesn't say this to us, but uh, I have to imagine that uh, at some point in his journey from Joppa up the coast to Caesarea, uh, Peter maybe wrestled with his decision and asked himself some pretty important questions. If I'm going to hold on to the laws of my faith, if I'm going to adhere to the traditions that have defined me as a person that have guided me all of my life, do I not need to go there and say, hey, I'm sorry, I cannot baptize a Gentile who is not converting to Judaism. I cannot baptize a Roman centurion in a a place called Caesar Town because that's just going too far. I mean, that, that is just way beyond the pale. It is out of the box. Or do I abandon my tradition? Do I violate those laws? 
in order to do something that I kind of think Jesus may want me to do, even though I think it might land me in some hot water with the religious leaders of the infant church back in Jerusalem, which is, of course, is exactly what happened. In other words, if I baptize this guy, am I compromising? Am I selling out? Or am I actually getting closer to the heart and the mind of Jesus? And so we don't know what Peter might have been thinking. Luke doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that from Acts chapter 10, the first thing that Peter says when he crosses the threshold and enters into the home of Cornelius is this. You know that our law prevents a Jew from associating with a Gentile. And so if Peter was concerned about his decision, he had very good reason to do that because as the curtain rises on today's passage from Acts chapter 11, Peter is now back in Jerusalem, appearing before the council of elders And instead of being welcomed back as some sort of a spiritual hero who goes on this daring mission into the epicenter of religious and political opposition in order to plant the seeds of the gospel where it is needed the most, Peter gets raked over the coals by guess who? The leaders of the church who look at him and say to him in effect, Peter, what on earth got into you that you would do this? And today's passage from Acts 11 is Peter's response to that question. It is his statement of defense in which he says to the elders in Jerusalem, what got into me was a vision I had in guess where? Joppa, when I was praying one afternoon. And then he describes that vision, which uh, Barbara read and that you heard, in which he sees this screen of sorts, and it is filled with these uh, animals. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this, but the, these animals are those who are considered to be ritually uh, unclean or impure under the religious and dietary laws of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. And so Peter sees this image of these animals, and yet he hears a voice saying to him, Peter, get up, kill them, eat them. Feast on them. Bon appetit. And so he's got the vision over here. He's got the voice over here. And they're battling each other. And Peter responds and he says, you know, I've never put anything into my mouth that is unclean. I can't do this. And then the voice speaks to him a second time and says to him, Simon, do not call something that God has made clean profane. What does that mean? Well, maybe Peter thought initially, at least, uh, that God was somehow releasing him from the dietary laws and restrictions of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, which, in the context of his relationship with Jesus, you know, he might have actually understood. But here's the thing. Something was going on that was way, way beyond that. Because at the end of the day, Peter discovers that God isn't just talking about animals. He's talking about people. He's not talking about laws and rules. He's talking about relationships. And how do we know that? We know that from Acts chapter 10, when after entering into the house of Cornelius, Peter says famously, you know, our law prevents a Jew from associating with a Gentile, after which he says this, 
but I now understand that God accepts people of every nation through Jesus Christ. Not obedience to the law, not adherence to uh, tradition, uh, not because of your race, your background, your religious pedigree, not because you have led some sort of an unblemished spiritual life, but through Jesus Christ alone. That is Peter's defense. That is his vision statement to the Jerusalem council, which he then brings to a close by saying to them, so I have discovered that there is no distinction between us and the Gentiles. And then he ends with that rhetorical question, and who am I to hinder God? And then he closes his case. And that is his vision statement, which the elders in the Jerusalem council consider silently until they reached their decision. And their decision was to praise God, to accept the testimony of Peter, which ends up winning the day, to affirm the good news that after all is said and done, Jesus Christ isn't just for some people. Jesus is for all people. And so they say, well, then, God has given, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. It is a stunning turn, breaking news in the history of our faith. But today, this uh, kind of complicated and tricky passage also uh, begs a few questions uh, to you and to me as followers of Jesus and members of his church in our generation. Questions about uh, how we respond to people who need the Lord, but whose road to him is very from yours or from mine. And, you know, who it is, questions about who it is that gets in or is kept out or how much is required. Questions about what boundaries we can or even should violate, how far we should or can go in order to plant the seeds of the gospel in this broken, hurting, searching world. Questions about what it really means for us to be in the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ doing our thing as Christians and followers of him. I don't know that we're going to answer all those questions today, uh, but I would like to invite you for a moment just to think of one person in your life who you are least likely to engage because they're so different from you. In whatever category you want to dream up, and then imagine yourself going to that person, meeting that person where they are, engaging them with your mission statement, your vision statement in some way, shape, or form, so that by the grace of God, they might find themselves gravitating toward a place in the family for which Jesus Christ laid down his life and rose again on the third day. And as you think about that person, let me just say to you that the St. Andrew I know is a place where we've all had more than our share of spiritual blunders over the course of time, and my heart at least isn't always in the right place. But I also give thanks for the boundaries that have been crossed, for the walls that have come down, 
for the mission and vision and ministry of Jesus in this community of faith. I give thanks that last Wednesday night at our faith walk for our new members, uh, we were going around and sharing our uh, spiritual uh, backgrounds and I, he I heard the word Lutheran and I also heard Methodist, I heard Roman Catholic, I heard Baptist, I heard non-denominational and, and some others. And in other groups over the years, I have heard you know, Buddhist and Jewish and Wiccan and uh, no affiliation, no connection uh, whatsoever. Which is to say to you that while we are obviously a Lutheran church here at New Hampshire and Norwood Road, that this is not just some franchise for Lutherans here at St. Andrew. This is a place for all the whole people of God to come and join us in the great adventure of knowing and following and enjoying the grace of Jesus Christ. And I give thanks, you know, even for people over the years, some of whom have come to me and, and they've said to me, you know, I'm still kind of working out my faith, but I just want to work it out in here. I give thanks that 14 years ago, you literally bet your house you literally bet your future on people you didn't even know yet, who you had yet to meet because they weren't here at the time when that decision was made. I give thanks for courageous, mission-minded, risk-taking leaders, some of whom we still honor among us, some of whom on whose shoulders we stand today and are, are with the Lord in the church triumphant in heaven. I give thanks to God uh, that even though the Lutheran Church, uh, quite frankly, is one of the whitest denominations in America today, that this community of faith represents more than 30 different countries and counting, which I think looks just a little bit more like heaven. I give thanks uh, for a guy who came up to me uh, one Sunday years ago after this contemporary service, and he said, you know, there's nothing like a good Lutheran service. And this was nothing like a good Lutheran service. <laughs> but there he was, and there he stayed. Because this community of faith made that possible, even though, frankly, it is not everybody's spiritual cup of tea. I give thanks for a pre-pandemic meeting of our outreach team that for some reason took place in the craft room, because I guess all the other rooms were filled, in which the leader of that team talked about the church in which he grew up that was about to close because its purpose was to minister to people of one specific nationality and that purpose no longer exists. After which, with tears in his eyes, he looked at the group and he said, and now I'm part of a church that exists for everybody. So, I want you to know and remember today that we have a Messiah who included people in his plan that other people would have never dreamed of including. People like irreverent fishermen, tax collectors, Gentiles, women and men who were known to be sinful, even members of his religious establishment that were all about the keeping of the law. I am here to tell you again today that 
there is no degree in which you are unclean or impure or defiled in your life that makes you beyond the reach of Christ. And I am here to remind you, as I've done many times before with variations on the theme, that in the risen Christ, there is no more us and them. There is only us and the family of God. That's what Acts 10 and Acts 11 are all about. And for that, we join the Jerusalem Council and we praise God and we celebrate that now that we have been reinstated in absolution, recommissioned in our baptism, we get to celebrate that. We get to rejoice in it. We get to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ isn't just for some people. He is for all people in the whole wide world. And so let's keep going. And let's keep doing that for the glory of God for the joy of your life, and for the hope of this world. And with thanksgiving and love and glory to God, that is my vision statement for the fifth week of Easter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.